This is the Sashen using sound. Please lower it. 2016. It's important that we remember why we're practicing. The purpose of religion, the purpose of religious life is not, I'll figure out my place in the universe. I'll figure out my relationship to the universe. It is about suffering. It is about dukkha. It's about the end of suffering, causes of suffering, how to live a life. People have been speculating for as long as human beings have been alive about what is the, where is my place in the universe, and what are human beings made from and for, and so on and so forth. What is the origin? Is there a God, etc.? Shakyamuni Buddha basically said, you know, these are unanswerable questions. So why spend a lot of energy trying to answer the unanswerable questions? Why don't you actually put your attention on what is actually doable? What's, what is really important? What is it that the heart wants? And we all want to be free from suffering. We all want to be free from dukkha, the endless round of friction. <clears throat> and all beings want to be free from dukkha. You see a hundred people? A hundred people want to be free. They may have a hundred different ideas about how to achieve that, but the fundamental thing is really want freedom, liberation. Now, there are two principles upon which this intention is based. Two principles on which, in, certainly in the Buddhist tradition, that are essential. The first is wisdom. You can say clarity, you may say enlightenment. The other is compassion, kindness or love. The freedom from dukkha, the freedom from suffering, is dependent upon our understanding, our insight, the clarity of our own mind and heart, and then how that heart and mind function. Love without wisdom is at best troublesome, at worst destructive. Love without wisdom is personally harmful. Wisdom without actualization as love is at best impotent. And at worst, it becomes cold and impersonal and disregards people for some idea of what is good. So it's well to, at this point in a retreat, to just review where we come from, why have we done what we've done, why have we done the practices that we've done, and what are the implications of that. So just to review some of what's happened this past few days, and to remember that we can take this with us. It's not something that it's a matter of, I did it in Sashen, I can't do it elsewhere. We're training ourselves in an attitude, we're training ourselves in skills, we're training ourselves in a particular view that we can take with us that will serve a 
us in our larger life. The first thing that we do and have done and continually do and is always reminded of is being present at every level. You can't be present and have clarity of mind. You can't. You have to be present in order to have clarity of mind. You have to be present for us to see what is wise. We have to be present to embody compassion. So the first thing that we do when we come to session or we come to sitting, we try to teach is we try to teach this basic tool for a healthy life, be present. And we teach that tool in lots of ways, you know, be with your breath and do body scans, feel the, <clears throat> the air at the change of temperature at the nostrils, etc. Here in this particular retreat, we've been emphasizing Listen, 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 listen. Use sound as the way of being present. If you learn how to be present and to be awake to being present, you can take it with you. It's not something that you do in session, you don't do elsewhere. So we learn that skill. We're reminded of that skill. then we are reminded not only do you have to be present, but you have to actually remember to be present on an ongoing basis. You have to actually be grounded and be anchored in the present moment on an ongoing basis. That requires concentration. So we acknowledge we need to be present, but then we have to actually practice. I'm really aware of being present. I'm aware of being present. I'm aware of being present. And we are concentrating, learning how to be moment to moment to moment. So many people come, as all, most of you know, and we all have experienced this. We come, we do zazen, we practice, we stabilize our mind, we leave the circumstance, we leave the sitting, we leave the session, we leave, and suddenly, whoop, it all goes out the window. We stop really efforting to be present. Or the bell rings at night and we flee, so we don't have to be present anymore. Third, in order to, to embody wisdom, in order to embody compassion, we have to be ethical. We have to, have a, we have to follow the precepts. Now, in Sashen, we don't emphasize that particular side of things because essentially, per force, everyone is largely ethical. We are living in a harmonious way. We're not talking so much, so we're not lying. We've got a nice structure, plenty of resources. We don't have to be worried about stealing. But the ethical foundation of, of life, the ethical foundation that is essential to see through dukkha, to let go of suffering, is always vital. 
So we come to Sashen, we be present, we remind ourselves over and over again to concentrate, remind ourselves to use the particular practice that we've been using to listen. And then as we've been working with hearing, or whatever practice we're working with, we are listening to things as they are. So you can listen to this whole talk simply as sound as it is. We can listen to the different types of music as sound as it is. We can listen to silence as silence as it is. So there's an acceptance there. We are present and we are present and we practice acceptance. Practice meeting things, absorbing things, hearing things, experiencing things, and accept. This is the way it is. And when we accept something, when we accept sound, for example, it becomes a pure sound. It's just sound. C, V, K, whatever note it is. Pure sound. The universe does not really care whether we accept things or not. The universe does not really care about our triumphs and tragedies or our perceived triumphs and tragedies. So because we are present, we're accepting things as they are, we let go of the inner critic. We let go of arrogance and entitlement. Entitlement is I'm entitled to more and more and more. I'm entitled to things the way I think they should be. I'm critical because I can't hear sound well enough. I can't act well enough. Or arrogance, I don't need to do any change. I'm okay. So accepting things as they are involves humility. It involves being willing to simply meet, to simply listen. It's an essential practice we can take with us. Accepting things as they are is not about good or bad music. We've heard some magnificent music. We've heard some deep silence. Hopefully, we've heard some cacophonic rattling, disagreeable sound. It's just sound. So we take the practice of open listening, accepting, and hearing things as they are. We can take it with us. It's a skill that we've been cultivating And so we've been practicing that with all this music, with all this sitting. The next skill that we've been practicing with, the next insight that is vital, important, is a decrease of self-centered view. Or perhaps even insight. For example, with sound, Keep emphasizing, sound is not heard anywhere. You hear the sound of my voice, and it's wherever your awareness is. It's not localized. There's not some little bug inside there that's the recipient, or a microphone that's in there that's the recipient of all sound. We hear sound with our total being. 
we're aware of the room right now, and we're hearing the sound. Everything is hearing the sound. It has no particular location. We, what we think of as us, what we think of as I, me, and my, is not, as I keep saying, some little homunculus inside. That this sense of I and I am is not localized. We cannot find it. It has no location. It may be completely present, but it has no location. So in working with sound, we begin to see the non-localization of experience. Obviously, we're talking about a profound level here, because in one, one level, our knee hurts. But if we really look at where is that in the, in the cosmos, where is that in the expansive mind of awareness, this little point has no reference. It's all location is, is reference to someplace else. Our mind has no reference point. Location doesn't make much sense. Also, in listening to sound, and we're trying to listen to a slice of sound, if we're trying to listen to this talk and we're hearing one syllable, one syllable, one syllable, we're trying to hear it syllable by syllable by syllable, how long is that syllable? You know? Make no sense. Because at the instantaneous level, things don't exist. At the instantaneous level, Things arise completely. We've done all this toning, and instant by instant, what is the origin of a tone? It's not origin, it's not its origin somewhere in the past. It's not its origin is not somewhere in the future. Its origin is not a sequential process that led to a tone. In that instant, in that instant, in that instant, in that instant, right here, right now. The origin of everything is right here, right now. The origin of everything is the thing itself. The awareness of the thing itself. There is no place from which things arise. You know, whether you see that, believe it or not, it's not relevant. But if you look directly, and you look intimately without a preconceived notion, interesting things are Available. If we look directly without a preconceived notion of who I am, where I am, past and future, and we look directly, things arise spontaneously, fresh, each instant. And one of the hallmarks <clears throat> of real insight has been to see the freshness of things, to see things are fresh. They're uncluttered. They're unburdened. They come without a history. They're fresh. They're revealed moment to moment to moment. To who are they revealed? Interesting question. What is it that perceives sound? Interesting question. Again, one that during this retreat we've tried to turn our attention to. Another thing, just to review, that we've been talking about and pointing out and practicing is 
that we have the ability to hear sound and silence. That we have the ability to be aware of knowing and not knowing. We have the ability to be aware of dark and light, of what's in front of us and the fact we can't see what's behind us, of birth and of death, of coming and going. Awareness itself is not limited to one state or another. Awareness is present, so to speak, in the passing away of all things. All objects, all opposites are held in the presence of awareness, which has no location, no time, etc. So it's another thing we've been practicing and working with during this time together. Listening listens. Sounds hear themselves. Awareness is aware. Another thing that we have been working with or been pointing out is the qualities of awareness are not neutral. They're not the absence. Emptiness, when we talk about shunyata, is not an absence. The qualities are awareness, awakeness. It's not made of parts. It's boundless, inclusive. It's not a nothing. Clear, self-evident, no location. Whether we call it Rigpa or true nature or Buddha nature, all these names that try to point at the nameless, it's not relevant. But when we're listening to sound and we're holding the sound with the mind that has only awareness is it actually attributes, something is revealed. The next thing we've been practicing with and working with is that when we have this mind of awareness, when we have this mind of listening that we've been doing, we are listening to all of the music, all of the sounds, all of the notes, all interpenetrated, all one. And simultaneously, we could hear the rustling in the room, the silence outside, or the blowing of the wind outside of the frogs. Because listening is not here. Only one thing, it hears a whole soundscape. Awareness is inclusive. So we've been also practicing Awareness of the interdependence and intradependence of all things. Nobody is an island. Nobody is separate from the endless stream of resources that comes to support this life. The endless stream of connection that gives us the oxygen and the light and the air. The shared reality our own awareness, because we are not localized. We're not some 
thing. And if that's the case, if everything we are aware of is the nature of our own mind, if awareness itself is our very being, if wisdom is seeing the oneness, the awareness, the non-separation, and everybody's pain is my pain, Everybody's distress is my distress. Everybody's craziness is my craziness. And compassion then comes from our actions, our natural response to the world's pain and our pain. The natural response of the four immeasurables Loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, gladness, equanimity. So we come to Sashin and we practice for ourselves. We practice for ourselves because we've been motivated because of our disease, because of dukkha, because something is just not right, because we want something more, because we don't want to go the, the ordinary way that we see human life unfolding. We have a natural impulse to avoid suffering, to be free from suffering. And as we practice, we realize that same impulse that is the foundation of my practice is also the impulse to help, to support, to free other people. Because I'm not inside, other people are not outside. And so naturally, out of awareness comes compassion. Out of compassion comes the realization that I'm inadequate to the job. I need more awareness. Awareness, compassion. Compassion and awareness. Clarity of mind, openness of heart. Both become our life, our practice. Music is not inherently liberating. If it were, Beethoven, Michael Jackson, and Lady Gaga would be among the happiest people in the world. I don't think that's the case. And actually, in the 19th century, they used to say that great art had to come out of great suffering. It's only through great suffering that you actually were able to reach down deeply inside and then bring something out that was transcendental. I was able to, to see suffering in a new light. Some of the great, great 18th, uh, early 19th century artists suffered enormously. Art is not liberating. Food is not liberating. If it were, Americans would be among the happiest people in the world, North Americans. Sports is not liberating. Money is not liberating. Relationships are not liberating. Sex is not liberating. If sex were liberating, then we again, because of the profusion of pornography, the direct relationship between sex and 
happiness would be up and up and up. It's not liberating. If relationship were liberating, everybody who was in a relationship would be a happy, happy person. Good job is not liberating. Political systems are not liberating. Whether it's a functioning political system or a broken one. It is true that there is things that are more pleasurable and things that are less pleasurable. But we see pleasure turns into pain. Pain can turn into pleasure. Things are constantly changing. Everybody in this room, I am sure, at some point in your life, has laid in bed in the morning and said, I am not moving. It's so pleasurable here. I'm going to stay here forever. And you know, 15 minutes later, half an hour later, you have to pee, you get restless. And what was pleasurable has changed. Despite our best efforts. What is liberating is insight. What is liberating is awareness. What is liberating is the aware functioning of an open heart. What is liberating is awareness, insight, awakening. Awakening into the true nature of things. Awakening into the perfection inherent in all things. Awakening to healthy way to live. Awakening to the value and vitality of the precepts. Awakening to the interdependence and pristine purity arising from each moment. We come to Sashin and it's a laboratory for insight. And we can take this work home with us. We take this work, we take these insights, we take this, the teachings that we have, have seen, have tasted of, we take it back with us. One of the criterion that I often say, or whoever is giving the talk in the morning says, that, that when you go home, the measure of whether your session was really worthwhile or not is, is your heart more open? Do you have more loving kindness? People who you left at home, when you come back, they say, oh, are they softer and more polished up? Or you come back irritable and grumpy and fatigued and leave me alone. I've worked too hard. The world, as you know, the world can be looked at as being in dire straits, or perilous narrows, or a dangerous alley, or unsafe passage, however you want to put it. And there's always a long list of dangers which we may encounter. Always. It's just given. It's just absolutely given. The world, you know, we think is a particularly dangerous place right now, a particularly critical place. But from the perspective of an individual, it's happened millennia over time. From the perspective of an individual, the world is always falling apart. And so whether we're young and healthy, 
one sickness, one car accident. We're in a relationship. <sighs> Finally got the right relationship, the right partner, and then something happens. We start fighting. The world is in a perilous circumstance. Hitler-esque leaders, problems with economics, work, power grid, solar flares, the Yellowstone volcano. They predicted in the Yellowstone supervolcano that if it explodes, there will be 240 cubic miles of ash. 240 cubic miles ash, which means it will blot out the sun, which means you'll end up with a, a solar winter, which means the crops won't grow, which means we'll all die. Earthquakes, etc. Global warming. So given that, what's an intelligent response? Given all these things, given the nature of our own life, what is an intelligent response? I will go and build a bomb shelter, obviously. <laughs> I'll go and start stockpiling food, so I'll have enough food for the next 25 years, and it will all be fresh, and I'll have enough guns to protect it, and I will live totally, completely isolated in misery for the next 25 years because I was prepared. It's not an intelligent response, although, as you know, it's a very common response. It's not an intelligent response. An intelligent response is, I want to see the origin of suffering. I want to end the origin of suffering. And I want to use whatever particular means will enable me to do that. I want my life to not, this short, brief life that I have, I want this life to be a life that has a sense of light to it that wherever I go, instead of being more dukkha, added to more people dukkha, I want to offer something. In Shantideva's Way of the Bodhisattva, classic, classic book which everyone should look at, starts off like this. Shantideva was a teacher at Nalanda University in India back, I'm not sure, I've forgotten when, 700, 1100 CE, before the um, Mongol invasion. They say that it took three months for them to burn all the books in Nalanda University. And they find it three months to burn them all. There's so many books. It was a repository of wisdom from the entire ancient world. Shantideva was a teacher at, at Nalanda, and there's a number of probably quite apocryphal stories about him. But this remains. The way of the bodhisattva. Bodhi mean, bodhi mean enlightenment being, sattva, enlightened being. The way of enlightened beings. And it starts off, the excellent of bodhicitta. Citta is mind. Bodhi is again enlightened. So the excellent of the mind that turns toward enlightenment, the excellent of the, the mind that, as we often say, uh, 
the aspiration for awakening for the sake of all beings. Or the, the Dalai Lama's chant that we sometimes do, for as long as space endures, as long as living beings remain, may I too abide to dispel the misery of the world. It's the mind of bodhicitta. The mind that says, I will, well, let's see what Santideva says. Homage to all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. To those who go in bliss, that is, the Buddhas, the Dharma they have mastered, the teachings, and to all their heirs, to all who merit veneration, I bow down. According to tradition, I now in brief describe the entrance to the Bodhisattva discipline. It starts off, so hard to find such ease and wealth. Time, leisure, money, resources, the ability to take a week off and come here and sit around. So hard to find such ease and wealth whereby to render meaningful this human birth. If I now fail to turn it to my profit, how can such a chance be mine again? As when a flash of lightning rends the night, and in its glare shows all the dark black clouds have hid. Likewise, rarely through the Buddha's power, virtuous thoughts arise, brief and transient in the world. Thus behold the utter frailty of goodness. Except for perfect bodhicitta, there is nothing able to withstand the great and overwhelming strength of evil. There are realms in this world right here, right now, where honesty, telling the truth, is not valued. There are realms in this world right now where sacredness of life is not valued. There are realms in this world where respecting people's bodies is not valued. And rape and abuse is common. And those places, what do you do? And Shantideva says, regardless of what realm we find ourselves in, the aspiration for awakening, the aspiration is in a way the only, the only intelligent response. The mighty Buddhas pondering for many ages have seen that this and this only will save the boundless multitudes and bring them easily to supreme joy. Those who wish to overcome the sorrows of their lives and to put to flight the pain and suffering of beings, those who wish to win such great beatitude should never turn their back on bodhicitta. Should bodhicitta come to birth in one who suffers in the dungeons of samsara, in that instant they are called the Buddha's heir, worshipful alike to gods and people. For all the supreme substance of the alchemist, it takes the impure form of the human flesh and makes of it the priceless body of a Buddha. Such is bodhicitta. We should grasp it firmly. If all the leaders of all migrant beings here have with boundless wisdom seen its priceless worth, we who wish to leave our nomad wanderings should well hold to this precious bodhicitta. One of the virtues of being part of a lineage is that for the last 2,000, 
2,500 years, different teachers in each generation, teacher and student, teacher and student, teacher and student, teacher and student, have confirmed and applied and confirmed and applied these teachings. So the teachings come down not just as a revelation of a prophet here and now, but as the, the past and inherited wisdom that is each generation has in a way stamped and sealed and affirmed. Yep, 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 yep. And so it is not just one person's opinion, but it is the, the kind of certified wisdom of the whole lineage. As though they passed through perils guarded by a hero, even those weighed down with dreadful wickedness will instantly be freed from having bodhicitta, who would then not place their trust in it. Just as by the fires at the end of time, great sins are utterly consumed by bodhicitta, thus its benefits are boundless. Bodhicitta, the awakening mind. The great Mahayana sutras, and perhaps the great sutras in all the traditions, the great Mahayana sutras for sure, the Vimalakirti and the platform, the Shurangama, the Avantamsaka Sutra, the Buddha Sutra, Siddharma Pundarika. The great Mahayana sutras all try to present a vision that is beyond the rational mind. We as modern people are so rational, or we try to be, we think we are, so rational that everything seems to be related to the rational mind. It has to make sense to me. It has to be rational to me. But the reality, truth, is bigger than what's rational. The reality of truth has to include what's rational and what's not rational. It has to include what's transrational and what's pre-rational in a way. It has to include everything. So the great Mahayana Sutras try to present a vision of the world that includes everything. And one of the visions, one of the realities they point to, is that when the mind awakens, when the mind turns to the true nature of things, in that instant is liberation. It's not a matter of The truth itself is liberating. So there's the whole sudden school of Buddhism says, see what is most true, and no matter where you are, what the circumstance is, by seeing that, freedom is found right there. And so we've been using sound as a way of going down into, through, our conditioned mind into the unconditioned. editing very quickly here. But. It is important to have some appreciation of the spacious emptiness, the spacious 
awareness of our essential nature. Compassion has to be emanated from there. So if we look, here's what the Vimalakirti Sutra says. Vimalakirti is a great layman, great lay person. Um, <clears throat> Apocryphal Sutra, probably written around the year 1000, somewhere like that. Um, one of the profound sutras of the Mahayana tradition. On Jushri the Bodhisattva of, of great wisdom, talks to the lay person Vimalakirti. It says, how does a bodhisattva regard living beings? How does a bodhisattva regard living beings? How do we, how can we regard living beings? And they're going to talk about two aspects here. I'm going to read you a little bit of this just to make sure we get this view in. Vimalakirti replied, you, re you regard living beings, you regard people as a conjurer who looks on the beings he conjures up. Thus does the bodhisattva regard living beings. As, a wise, as the wise view the moon in the water, or a face or a form seen in a mirror, as shimmers of heat in a torrid season, as the echo that follows a cry, as clouds in the sky, as foam in the water, as bubbles on the water, as a thing no firmer than that trunk of a plantain. Plantain, a banana tree, they're often very hollow inside, so they look very sturdy and strong. They're actually quite, so I hear, quite uh, fragile, transient. Looking at living beings is no, lasting no longer than a flash of lightning. In this way does a bodhisattva regard living beings as forms in the world of the formless, as sprouts from charred grain, as mistaken views of the body in one who has entered the stream. So Vimalakirti is saying when we look at sound and we listen to sound intimately, we should regard sound not as a thing. We should regard sound in a way as an empty force. When we look at living beings individually, in an in instant, moment after moment, there is a swirl, a movement of life energy. There's a swirl, a movement of mysterious, dreamlike creatures that pass and change just like that. One of the aspects of wisdom is being able to see the absolute emptiness and unsubstantiality, unsubstantiality of all beings and all things, the formless nature of things. That's the wisdom aspect. However, if we just see that without compassion, if we just are listening to music without compassion, if we're just practicing anything without compassion, something is really wrong. So here's what Vimalakirti says. Manjushri said, if the bodhisattva looks on beings in this way, how can he treat them with compassion? Vimalakirti replied, when a bodhisattva has finished regarding them in this way, he thinks to himself, for the sake of living beings, I must preach the law to them, offer the Dharma to them. This is true compassion. He treats them with a compassion of tranquil extinction, for it results in no birth, 
He treats them with a compassion unburning, where it's void of earthly desires. He treats them with a compassion that is impartial, as the three existences of past, present, and future are impartial. He treats them with a compassion free of contention, where nothing appears to oppose it. He treats them with compassion undualistic, where internal and external have no place in it. He treats them with a compassion unfaltering, where it carries through to the end. He treats them with a compassion firm and durable, where the mind of a bodhisattva never flags. He treats them with a compassion clean and pure, as the nature of all phenomena is pure. He treats them with a compassion boundless, boundless as the empty sky. So we're practicing here. We're doing session. We hopefully we've learned something about particular techniques. We've learned something about approaches. Hopefully we have some appreciation that we can actually see into the root of things, see the spaceless, boundless, uh, pure, dreamlike nature of things. Out of that pure, dreamlike, spacious, boundless awareness is manifested great compassion, to go home with great compassion, to act with great compassion, to see all beings with great compassion is essential dharma practice. To boil all that down into something that is, is uh, mentally graspable, Dogen Zinji says there are four things that we should do when we go home. First, practice generosity, giving. Whether we're giving, whatever we're giving, any kind of giving that is given freely is a benefit to ourselves and others. Secondly, that we have kind speech, that our speech is not only in accord with the precepts, but it has the intention beneath it, the intention beneath it of liberation, the intention beneath it of honoring <clears throat> someone's aspiration for awakening. That we boil all of this down into good actions. We try to help others. The, the, three, the three pure precepts uh, to do good, to help others, to avoid evil. To do good. To do kind things without expectation to clean things up without expectation, to help somebody else without them even knowing it, to be responsible for our life and to give. And lastly, identity action is the way it often is translated. It means that we're all joined together. That is, in joining together with one another, we are being a benefit. In joining together for a good cause, in joining together for session, in joining together for each sitting, in joining together, we honor what is best for one another. In joining together to offer the four bodhisattva vows, that offering is awoken, aspiration for the offering is awoken in us, it helps awaken the offering in other people. The four bodhisattva vows, beings are numberless, I vow to free them. This vow right here, the oneness of all beings, the oneness of me and you, the oneness of all beings suffering, the aspiration to be free is the foundation of all practice, is the manifestation of all practice, is the end of all practice. Please. Have deep 
convicts. Have deep faith. That that which is moving in you, that that which is moving in you is the manifestation of the Bodhisattva vow. Look at it. Respect it. Appreciate it. Offer it.